Apoptosis going mad, my liver's gonna fail. Maybe it's from the radium I use to paint my nails. Well, say you hate me, carbon date me, throw me in the sea. I'll be back with time because I'm made of stardust and chemistry. Of stardust and chemistry. Alright, hello and welcome to Cowboy Chemistry, where we talk about the wilder days of chemistry. My name is Dylan Gardner, my pronouns are they, them, and I am a chemist. Um, See, we already got to cut. I already got to cut it out, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I am a PhD candidate of chemistry at Texas Tech University. Um, my guest today is Kristen Barron. Uh, she is a novice radiochemist, a radiochemistry enthusiast, uh, and hopefully future chemistry undergrad. Yeah, you say novice radiochemist, and that like scares me because it's not like I have like not like Mary Curie like carrying around like little bits of radium with me and stuff. But <laughs> I do love it. I think it's interesting how like stuff acts as waves and things i don't know it's all it's all crazy i look forward to learning about it and asking tons of questions especially about liza mitner meitner liza meitner liza meitner <laughs> or uh, or it's lee's meitner so i've heard i've heard both ways so lee's might be but every everyone who who is in the united states at least i've heard pronounce it liza okay but i think maybe in german it's lee's lee's meitner I, well, I did, listen, I'm going to defer to you because it's six <laughs> one way, half a dozen to meet the other. I will say when I was reading about her, I thought it was Lise. So, but either way, I don't, I don't think she's going to like sue us for getting her name wrong. No, uh, she's from my readings of her. She sounds like a super lovely person. Like she seems so nice. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm. Sh I think that all brilliant people are nice. No. Uh, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> there are. You have not. Well, you listened to um, uh, the episode with Gabby. Yes, where, I did. It's been a while, though. Yeah. I mean, Watson was pretty oh, neat. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I remember that now. Okay, strike that. All women who are pretty smart are nice. That sounds sexist and overgeneralized, but oh well. <laughs> It'll be fine. Um, but yeah. So we're gonna. I ask every guest, and you know, I've, I've described you as a novice chemist. But how much chemistry would you say you actually know? Um, I took one half of a semester of high school chemistry. So, and then I dropped out of high school. So I, I don't even have like a real education. And then I watched Chernobyl on HBO. <laughs> and and then I did about three or four months worth of research into like radiation so I think in fact you and I kind of met because I kept asking you about radiation when we met and you were like uh that's physics and I was like dang <laughs> so um I would say that I know maybe enough to be dangerous and definitely not enough to be smart about it like not even close <laughs> all right but I try we're gonna talk about radiochemistry today um and radiophysics um, because we're going to talk about Liza Meitner, like yes. we said. Yeah. Uh, she was described by Albert Einstein as the German Marie Curie. Okay. Um, Meitner, along with Otto Hahn, Fritz Strassmann, and her nephew Otto Robert Frisch, uh, discovered nuclear fission. So that's what we're going to talk about. Yes, nuclear fission is... I thought that was physics, though. 
So, again, Liza Meitner is a physicist. Okay. Otto Hahn is the chemist. Okay. So, but you can't talk about one without talking about the other. Okay. And why I picked this story and why I decided to focus on Liza Meitner instead of Otto Hahn, I know it's a chemistry podcast, but um, it's because in 1944, the Nobel Prize in Chemistry went to solely Otto Hahn. Okay. And no one else. And she was very instrumental. Yes. And so we're giving her the credit that she was due in 1944. This is retroactive Mm -hmm. credit. And we're going to talk a little bit about why she didn't get the Nobel Prize. Because, like, and a lot of people in this case would say that, like, Otto Hahn and Fritz Strassman probably should have gotten the chemistry prize. Mm -hmm. And then Liza Meitner and um, her nephew Otto Robert uh, Frisch should have gotten the... Physics prize. prize. Well, but also physics and chemistry are like so close. Yes, they have overlap yes. ridiculous amounts. Like so many things are physics and chemistry. Like you just can't separate them out. You can't pull them apart. So mm-hmm. it's all just semantics and pedant pedantry. It's a word, right? Pedantry. <laughs> <laughs> I think. It- Pedantry? Pedantry. Pedantry? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, um, yeah, you want to jump right into yes, it? Are we let's ready? jump in. Yes, I want to hear about this fascinating woman. All right, so we're going to talk first about, this is more of a biography, and okay. then, you know, at the end we'll talk about... The chemistry. Um, the, well, yeah, the, the, the... The controversy. That's okay. the word I'm oh, looking the for. Controversy. Ooh, the I controversy. Know I didn't know there was controversy. I'm titillated. <laughs> uh, Liza Meitner was the third child of Philip and Hedwig Meitner. Um, she was born on November 7th of 1878 um, in Findisil, Vienna. Findisil. Um, which at the time was the capital of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So it wasn't Austria, it was the Austro-Hungarian Empire, but modern day, it's in Austria. Okay. Um, her par- not Australia. Not Australia. <laughs> you, read, you read Australia. I read Australia. I swear to God it was in Australia. I was like, that's so crazy. I didn't know people came from Australia like at that time and were doing chemistry. <laughs> Who knew Australians knew chemistry? At this time, I think Australia was probably still a penal colony. Yeah, that's what I was thinking or something. I don't know. Um, when we should research if you don't, that. If you don't know about it, uh, uh, England sent a bunch of their criminals to Australia. Um, yes. Just shipped them on off to Australia. So, yeah. <laughs> um, her parents sounded wonderful. They had a big, loving family with a total of eight children. Um, Her mother loved music, and so all the children learned how to play piano at an early age. Her father was a lawyer and valued education, so um, he hired tutors for all of his children um, to learn. Um, the girls. Yes. Uh, Liza loved to read. Her favorite subject, even from childhood, was mathematics. One of her sisters, Frida, said that she, like, Liza would sneak math books to read at night. That so she was like an uber nerd. Yes, she was like she was yeah. She was the nerdiest of the nerds. She's just like mommy, teach me math instead of I don't know. Like yeah, she's just an uber nerd. <laughs> it reminded me very much of me because I watched the medical channel when I was little. I was like me, me, Eliza are very similar people. I think reminds me of my older son Asher because he literally like watches YouTube and he doesn't watch all this like stupid stuff like other kids watch. It's like 
like these long proofs of mathematical <laughs> equations, and he's like, "Oh, mom, watch this. It's so cool." And it's like, I. Well, high school dropout, stop telling me these things. I don't understand it. I don't get it. Go away. Go nerd somewhere else. I want to watch my trash TV. Thank you. <laughs> but, uh, so Liza being born in Austria uh, did set up two major hurdles for her education from birth. Okay. So the Meitners were a Jewish descended family. So they they were they had converted to Protestantism. So they were Christians by faith, but like, you know, Ju- Judaism is an ethno religion, right? right? So legally, they were still Jewish. This was not a good time to be Jewish. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, though. In this time, it really wasn't too bad. Okay. You fast forward a little bit, and we'll talk about it. Okay. Um, it gets really bad really fast. Yes. Yes. So, um, but yeah, Liza. Um, Real quick, this carpet is amazing on my feet. Thank you. Oh, my God. Where'd you get this? Uh, Amazon. <laughs> oh, man. Send me the link. <laughs> um, in Austria at the time, Jewish people were not treated as second-class citizens legally. Legally. So um, there were, of course, still prejudices, but in uh, the Austrian Constitution of 1867 uh, proclaimed fundamental rights of all citizens. So that... Um, that gave Jewish citizens um, of Vienna legal and civic equality. And that was just 11 years before Liza was born. Okay. I feel like I've heard this before. I feel like I've heard that story where, like, legally we're all equal, but, you know, mm-hmm. we're not. <laughs> That's um, not how this really works. Yeah. And so, like, the thing is, Austria is a very patriarchal country and culture. Okay. Germ- German culture is ver- was very... Um, uh, patriarchal. Mandatory education was complete for girls at the age of 14. Wow. So, um, girls were also not allowed to attend the college preparatory high school either. So there was a whole... They were supposed to be barefoot and pregnant by 15. That's why you need to keep educating them after 14. Well, so the idea was that they were just educated enough for, like, good good child rearing. Like, you don't want your, your wife to be too dumb, because then your children will be dumb. Right. That was the idea. But you definitely don't want her to be smarter than you, because right. they, then they get mouthy when they get smart. And you <laughs> can't have that. Um, but yeah, there were a few women that had went to the University of Vienna, but they were privately tutored for a PhD. Nice. Um, not, and they were not in general classes, right? So. Right. You gotta keep them away from the men. Mm-hmm. No temptations. Yes, and this did change in 1899 when the government of Austria declared that universities had to admit women even without a high school diploma, but they still had to pass the college entrance exam. So if they passed the college entrance exam, you had to let them in. Man, I like that rule. Can we do that here? That'd be amazing. Um, Well, so their exam was called the Matura, and it was rough. It was very rigorous and roughly equal to an associate's degree. Wow. Yeah. So Liza's sister, Gazella, was the first one in her family to do this. She studied for two years to pass the test um, and entered medical school in 1900. So how many times could you take that test? I mean, I think you can take it as much as you want. Wow, that's crazy. I I I don't really know. Um, But, I mean... Not a lot of people pass it their first time. We'll get into that. So, like, it's it's not an easy test. I mean, the equivalent of an associate's degree, I would assume not. That's yeah. pretty... That's intense. So, in 
so these these issues were why when Liza asked her father to go to college, um, he was very aware of the Viennese system, university system, um, and the obstacles that she would face. Like, he wasn't against it, but she, he was concerned. Right. Um, and so her parents encouraged her to learn a skill, such as teaching first, to support herself while preparing for college. So, like, if she doesn't get in, she has a, a back... You know, they wanted her to have a backup. Makes sense. So she obtained her uh, teaching credentials for French while she studied for the college entrance exams in sciences. Um, she knew from the jump that she wanted to study physics. Like, just, she already knew. <laughs> um, in 1900, when Liza was 20 years old, she had, she had accomplished her French teaching certificate um, and was completing her trial teaching year at an all-girls school. In her spare time, and I put that in quotes because spare time, she was constantly studying calculus, science, psychology, German literature, Greek, Latin, zoology, mineralogy, and religion. I mean, because she basically had to teach herself the equivalent of an associate's degree. Yes. <laughs> like, of course this is a lot. Good grief. Her sisters would tease her saying things like, Liza, you've walked across the room without studying. Oh, man. <laughs> I bet that also made a lot of people angry because, you know, she wasn't also trying to get a man because that was kind of a thing back then was got to marry a man and be barefoot and pregnant. She's already 20. She's already six years past the barefoot and pregnant. She should have been, you know, she's yeah. overripe. <laughs> so, you're going to have to cut a lot of that. How was Kristen thinking? She's just like... Yeah, well, I don't think people got married quite that young at this time period. And then a lot of that, too, like, her parents were, again, like, wonderful. So okay. they were not, like, go get married, Liza. They, okay, they, they were very supportive of her education. Because I feel like a lot of that pressure often comes from a family. You know what I mean? But, no, her parents were all about it. Like, they were only, like, they were only worried about the fact that, like, like it would be hard on, on, on their kids, you know? Like, right. The way a good parent should be. But um, she would travel across, Liza would travel across the city to the boys' high school to get private tutoring along with two other women there from um, a Dr. Arthur Savarsi. Savarsi. Uh, um, Liza described the experience with joy. She, she really loved it. Dr. Savarsi had a real gift for presenting the subject in a stimulating manner. Sometimes he was able to show us the apparatus in the University of the Vienna Physics Institute, a, ri uh, a rarity in private coaching. I'm not going to lie. Everything you said there just sounded really dirty. Like, <laughs> apparatus and... What, what did you say? Oh, like, stimulating apparatus. That's all I heard. <laughs> Get your mind out of the gutter. <laughs> Stimulating apparatus. <laughs> um, but yeah, she she says today it abuses me to think of my astonishment when I saw certain apparatuses for the first time. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes, um, it's not dirty. Stop <laughs> laughing. <laughs> Like, <laughs> okay, but Liza had managed to study eight years worth of material in two years and pass the matura. That is very impressive. She was Good grief. She was one of the four women out of the fourteen that took the test that year to pass. Um, and so she started at the University of Vienna in autumn of 1901 at the age of 23. <clears throat> Sorry, I had a wait. Yeah. 
So, and when I say eight years of material, right, because she didn't even go to high school, so she had to catch up with all the things the boys learned in high school and to get an associate's degree. Right. Because, right? so. yeah, because they kicked her out of high school at 14, so she, yeah, kid grief. This woman is... So she had to learn six years of high school and then two years of college for her the associates. That's a lot. That's mm-hmm. a lot of material. Yeah. Uh, many professors at the time um, actually had a basically a right um, to kick women out of their lectures because, uh, like, if they deemed that it was like inappropriate. So this usually happened in medicine and anatomy lectures, right? Because if you have, they had, you know, bodies and they were looking at anatomy. Um, and so, but yeah. Wait, like, how are you supposed to learn if you're getting kicked out of the lectures? Like, is she, I guess women were, so this didn't did exactly, they kick the men out when they no. were looking at female cadavers? Because that feels just as inappropriate. Yes, but no. Right. Yeah. Okay. No, of course not. Um, but yeah, this didn't really happen to Liza very right, much. It physics. was yeah, it was physics. So she was actually one of the first women. I think she was the first woman. Yeah, first woman to be um, admitted to the University of Vienna's physics department specifically. Um, and this really represented a cultural shift that was taking part across all of academia. So universities that at the time also had like a different way of teaching. So in a modern university, you know, there's like a list of classes to take. You attend those classes, you get a good grade, you get a degree. Right. Um, but at this point, you had to find a mentor and create a rapport with the with a faculty member. Um, and so during my, Liza Meitner's first year, she actually worked with a mathematics professor, um, Professor Grigenbar. Um, he gave her the work of like an Italian mathematician and asked her to find the error. Like that was that's what he wanted her to do. Sounds um, like a trick question. What if there was no error? There was an error. Okay. It wasn't a trick question. He was trying to like help her. Okay. And like um yeah, but like she really struggled with it and like needed his help to find the error. Um and then he suggested that she publish it as her work, you know, like because she did do it, but it, he assisted her, and she didn't feel that was right because it wasn't really her own work. I see. I mean, yeah, because it was an Italian guy work, guy's work, and then she just fixed the error. Right. Well, so no, that's very common. Oh. That's how. Okay. That's how math works usually. Like, so you somebody publishes a thing. If you find an error in their work, you you publish the correction, and like, you know what I mean? Like, and that's, you get credit for that. Okay. Yeah. So that's actually really common. Okay. In in the math world, anyway. But because he gave her pointers and pointed her in the right direction or something, she was like, "I didn't do this alone. I need to give you credit as well." That's yeah, thing. yeah. I I think that's what you know she wanted because she was like, I didn't really do this. You did this, you know. So she was a woman of scruples and morals and yes, integrity. She really was. Um, I think. Um, I mean, she could have been a closeted serial killer for all we know, but you know, I don't. I don't think so. I don't think so. In her day to day life, she was fine. I'm sorry. <laughs> No, anyone. Um, are weird. <laughs> I guess you're right. We don't really know anyone. Um, <laughs> but anyway, this professor was very annoyed that she would not publish it. And so the incident made it clear that she was to become a physicist and not a mathematician in her own words. Right. <laughs> um, so in her second year, she found a lecturer, Franz Exner, who uh, encouraged hands-on work. 
so a lot of physics at this time was um, theoretical, right? right? So it's all it's a lot of math, you know, a lot of on paperwork. Um, but Exner was very much an experimentalist. Um, so that's how she found herself in the lab of Anton Lampe. Um, she said of her first lab, I often thought, if a fire breaks out here, few of us will get out alive. <laughs> I feel like that's still, like, vaguely relevant in some chemistry labs and stuff. I mean, it shouldn't be. If your lab feels that way, you should leave that lab. Probably, yeah. Why didn't she leave that lab? Well... It was a different time. Huh? I was gonna say this is this is like 1901. So it's fine if people just burnt out in random buildings. Like that was like the norm. Just, oh no, we lost 20 people in a fire today. <laughs> um, this early lab experience really solidified her love and affinity for physics. Right. Her biggest, her, her possibly her biggest influence was uh, Ludwig Boltzmann. I don't know if you know who that is. But um, he was a great lecturer that was very enthusiastic about the subject and carried the lecture well. He would also put in like personal remarks about the subject, um, especially when it came to atoms. Okay. Um, at the time, atoms were considered an indivisible ultimate unit, right? Like you can't break apart an atom. Right. So, um, however, progressive chemists and physicists like Boltzmann were theorizing that atoms were not the smallest unit and proposed divisible atoms. So, like, he was saying that protons and neutrons and electrons, they were just bonded forever. He was saying they're not. Oh. So Everyone else was saying Everyone that. else was saying that. Like, you can't, yeah, like... You're, you're, a you're, water atom is a water atom, and it will always ever, only ever be a water atom. But didn't they... So water is a molecule, right? God, <laughs> stop your mess. I knew it the moment I said it, and I was like, wait a second. So, like, an oxygen atom is an oxygen atom, and it's only ever going to be an oxygen atom. But then how did they explain, like, ions or isotopes? So, at this point, they do not know about isotopes. Okay. Oh, wow. So that's, like... Like a new thing, kind of. I mean, I guess it's all new. Never mind. This sounds... Forget how new all of this stuff is and that we didn't know all this stuff for 2,000 years since Democritus or some things. It's just so crazy how they didn't know all these things. Mm -hmm. Things that we learned in high school chemistry. Exactly. So, yeah, like, they didn't know about isotopes yet at all. So, like, they they were still trying to figure out, like, what, and some of the work that Liza Meitner does is figuring out where those isotopes fit on the periodic table. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, Liza Meitner and Otto Hahn, like, they were, they, that's their whole thing, was figuring out where do these elements fit on the periodic table. Has a mole been discovered yet? I don't know. Probably. You think? The oh. unit of measurement. Yeah, the unit of measurement. Avogadro's number. I think Avogadro's number is very old. I think that's pretty old. No, no, no. But like the mole. Listen, I'm really, tr- I'm really trying to understand this here because, he, like, twelve gram. Like that's how you measure things. Like, but like, you have to use like the atomic mass to measure that stuff, right? Right. So we know we know the atomic mass of. Uh, like carbon and some other elements. How did they know that if they didn't... I guess it's just blowing my mind that they could know the atomic mass and not know about isotopes because how did they they parse that out? Like, because wouldn't an isotope weigh less if it's, like, 
you know, helium-3 instead of, like, helium-4 or something like that? Wouldn't that weigh less since it has less protons? Yes. So it does. But if you look at, like, the masses on the periodic table, right, they are averages of okay. multiple isotopes. Right, so they were probably working off the average as well, is what I would assume. Like, they, the, their calculations were already an average. Right, because you can't, like, calculate down to the... Okay, okay, I get it. Because, you know, in my brain, I'm thinking, like, absolute weights. Like, I can mm-hmm. weigh this book and know pretty much its exact weight, but I can't know it all the way down to, like, the tenth decimal and when you're talking about atoms you're like even smaller than that so yeah everything every time you weigh an atom it's all rough estimates Mm -hmm. and i'm sitting here thinking well how would they know with precision they will never know with precision it's all guesswork not until we invent mass specs and i don't know when that is (laughs) okay yes yes and that's like i'm thinking like i thought that was like the 60s or something like that it's crazy this is crazy to me that we (laughs) some of the things that we i just know they did not. Exactly. So that's the thing, like, yeah, you got to, like, put put yourself back, because, like, they don't know a lot of the things that we know now. Yeah, that's so hard to wrap my brain around. It's really hard for me to be like, but how did they not know that this existed, that that atoms could be split, you know, and exploded upon the world and made energy and stuff? Like, this is common knowledge. Everyone knows this. My seven-year-old knows this. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so Boltzmann, though, you know, he's one of the first guys that are saying that you can divide an atom, like, okay. and that there are particles smaller than the atom itself, and that the atom is not a, you know, like, because they, I think they start to know, they'll, they'll know soon about, like, electrons and protons, and then um, we'll talk about Liza Meitner and the discovery of neutrons to a certain degree, like, so. But they haven't gotten to, like, quarks yet. Oh, absolutely okay. not. That's, like, no, mechanical, no. wait, what is that? Quantum mechanics, that's yes. what I'm trying to think. Okay, so that's like, that's still really new. We're still figuring that all out. Okay. Yeah, I don't think anybody's probably proposed a quark yet. Like, Nobody, Nobody's even thinking of that yet, I don't yeah. think. Um, so, uh, but Liza Meitner, be, or sorry, Boltzmann, um, also was an influence on another prominent physicist, which we'll talk about later as well, who's important to this story, Max Planck. Max Planck. That's a cool name. That's a cool, like, superhero name. Max Planck. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Meitner began researching to complete a PhD in 1905 under the direction of Franz Exner. Franz Exner. She began studying the thermodynamic properties of mercury metal. So she proved that Maxwell's formula for the conduction of electricity in homogeneous materials also applied to the thermal conduction in mercury. I understand every word you just said. Yeah. <laughs> Just a year later, in 1906, her dissertation, so she completed it in a year. Uh, In 1906, her dissertation was entitled Thermal Conduction in Non-Homogenous Bodies, um, and that was published in the Proceedings of the Vienna Academy of Sciences. She was awarded her doctorate in February of 1906, the second woman ever in the university at just 28 years old. Wow. The first woman was uh, Gabrielle Poss... Passener von Ernthal, I'm gonna go with Ernthal, um, was the first to receive a doctorate in medicine from the University of Vienna. And props to that lady, because again, remember, um, she was probably kicked out of a lot of anatomy lectures. Yeah. And she was still the first to graduate. Yeah. Yeah, that poor woman. Although, 
I guess if it was me and they kept kicking me out of anatomy lectures, just be like, I can't treat you, sir. I've never seen a penis. Like, I don't know how to treat this. What is this thing that you were talking to me about? No, no. But then again, I guess with the attitudes at the time, like, the men probably wouldn't want to see a woman anyway, so. Yeah. Um, she was probably an OBGYN. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would not be surprised if she focused on women's health. I mean, at the time, a lot of people were neglected. Well, yeah, badly, I was say, they, they, so. they, women probably needed it because, like, from what I remember, like, they were still treating hysteria with, like, cocaine and dildos, so... Yep. <laughs> the fa- they were still diagnosing hysteria. I At mean, like, because that's not even... Had the cocaine and dildos gone out of fashion by this No, point. no, I'm just saying, like, the fact that they're even still diagnosing people with hysteria is, is ridiculous, right. right? Yeah. I mean, um, I don't know. I think I might have been hysterical a few times, you know, for some cocaine. Well, uh, yes, but, like... <laughs> Hysteria was just some vague right. diagnosis they gave you for any problem you had ever. That's yes. what I'm saying. Like, I think it was literally just because women wanted cocaine and dildos. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like the perfect combination. <laughs> um, but yeah, her family was immensely proud of Liza, and her elder sis, her eldest sister, had also completed her degree in medicine. So. Um, yeah, they were super proud of her. Yeah, I would be super proud of her, too. I mean, she literally taught herself eight years of school. And then she went on to get a degree that, I mean, women aren't weren't expected to get. I would be incredibly proud, too. She sounded like she broke through that glass ceiling. Mm-hmm. Um, however, the joy of this did not last long. Of course it didn't. So, um, Boltzmann, um, lost his battle with depression, um, the same year, and so he committed suicide. Um, his loss was felt worldwide by the scientific community and led to a chain reaction. That Um, does not sound like a good kind of chain reaction, because I know in chemistry, some of them are good. This one sounds detrimental. It is... I mean, I feel like it's a little neutral in this case. Because, like, Bolt... I mean, the loss of Boltzmann is very sad. Mm-hmm. And it, but it also sets up a lot of things for Liza Meitner and the scientific community of Germany. Okay. So we'll get we'll get into that. See, um, when you said chain reaction, I was thinking of a bunch of other people committing suicide. Oh, Because no. that happens. Yes. No, that does happen. But no, that... That's what I was thinking. I was like, oh, no. Like, a whole bunch of people just died. No, 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 okay, no. Okay. No, no. Um, no, that is absolutely a thing. But no, th- not in this case. Good. Um, <laughs> but after Boltzmann's death, Stefan Meyer um, became the chair of the Physics Institute. Um, Liza heard through Meyer about the work of the Curies, like Marie Curie. Uh-huh. Um, I know them. And so... You know, she's no longer a graduate student, so she was trying to decide what she would, like, specialize in and create for herself, right? Mm -hmm. And so many encouraged her to go into theoretical physics because that's, like, considered, like, the height of physics at the time, you know. Um, And she had... I think it still kind of is. uh, I mean, I would think most physicists would feel that theoretical and experimental are both needed. Right, you need both sides of it. In this time, experimental was considered like a throwaway. Like it wasn't, it wasn't seen as even valuable to do. Really, to some people. Okay. 
I mean, obviously that's not everybody, but um, some people really, and we'll, you'll see why I say that toward, at the end, because, like, okay. really. But, yeah, she had um, successfully published a paper about optical experiment, or uh, p- predicting optical experiments, so, like, light. I'm not sure exactly what it was. Um, so people were encouraging her to, like, go after that and, like, the theoretical side of it, and she a- instead asked Meyer to let her study radioactivity instead. So... Um, and this is what she has to say about, um, her early, her early work. I remember I had done work on radioactivity in Vienna on the scattering of alpha rays, which are helium nuclei, at small angles. Um, this research emerged from a discussion between a physicist from Prague and one from Berlin. One had maintained that there was no scattering at small angles, and the other said that there was. I then considered that one could prove this, (laughs) and I recall when I had my alpha ray or electroscope there, colleagues would come by and held their hand out in the beam in order to see whether they were radioactive. (laughs) I can still remember that. It was... It was so at that time. One worked pretty carelessly. <laughs> yeah, because they didn't know that radiation could make your skin melt off of your body. Well, it can't make your skin melt off your body. I mean... But it is bad for you. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, I was being hyperbolic. But yes, <laughs> it's, it can, it's very dangerous stuff. That really made me, like... <laughs> That made my body tense when she said that they were just sticking their hands in the rays. That's crazy to me. Yeah. So, like, what did they just think radiation was just at the time? Like, what was... If I went back and... If I hopped in a time machine and went and talked to these people, what would, what did they think it was? So, I... They knew it was charged particles. They charged knew, particles. They knew... So, they knew, like, alpha... I know they know, knew alpha um, radiation was positively charged. They knew beta radiation was negatively charged. Okay. Um did they know anything about gamma radiation? Was that yes? Okay, I think they did know about it. So, um, but yeah, this is still pretty early, early stuff. Yeah. Okay, that's crazy. So it was just charged particles, and that couldn't rip through your body like bullets. They just were charged, and I mean, I guess alpha and beta can't rip through your body like bullets per se. So alpha will stop in your skin. Yeah. Um, beta can go a little deeper. Um, right. And then, yeah, so. I know Gamma, though, but I guess the thing is, is, like, you're going to have to educate me on this a bit because I don't really know. When it comes to radiation, like, does every single, if, if an atom is radioactive, mm-hmm. does it, it doesn't necessarily emit all three. Correct. So I am guessing that maybe the elements they were messing with probably didn't emit a ton of gamma radiation. So a lot, you know, if they're working with like uranium, thorium, that's mostly alpha radiation. Okay. Um, yeah. So I know they dealt with alpha and beta. A lot. A lot. And at least with Liza Minor. Okay. I just wonder when. I guess when gamma radiation really came on the scene, and they were like, "Oh, this is what we do study." Because didn't that like? I know there's some like. Schrodinger's law comes into place because that's when they figured out that gamma radiation moved like a wave when they were trying to figure it all out. And so, but then they realized, I don't know. It's, like I said, I know just enough to be dangerous and not enough to actually be smart on the topics. Yeah. So, like, gamma radiation is different in that it is, um, it's, it's a wavelength of light, right? And so at the time, the idea of light being a wave and a particle at the same time, it was not... 
that wasn't a thing quite yet. So gamma radiation's like like a photon? It is a photon. It is a photon. Yeah. Oh, okay. That kind of makes things make a little more sense because that's what I've been. Gamma radiation is the one thing that really is so confusing to me. I didn't know that photons could just like the atoms could give off photons. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Yeah. So if you think about like there's, um, I mean, essentially they're kind of giving off photons all the time. Things are because like if you um, do atomic spectra, they are. Like, have you ever seen a helium lamp? Mm-hmm. You know, like, you can, and then you can look through the scope, and you can see the wavelengths of light that the atom gives off. Oh, okay. So we just can't see a lot of the photons that atoms give off. So you have to give them enough energy. Okay. If that makes sense. I'm trying to make it make sense. <laughs> yes, no, you're doing a great job. Like I said, like, this Because that's is... why you need... Because if you just have the tube, right, with helium in it, uh-huh. it's not putting off any rays. But once you put it into an electric current... You're getting, you're getting, you'll see that atomic spectra, right? Okay. So you have to excite the electrons. And then when they relax back down to their normal ground state, they'll put off the, they'll put off the wavelength. Okay. This is crazy. Yeah. I can't wait to learn more about all this. This is, chemistry is insane. And so is physics and how these people figured all of this out when literally like just a couple of thousand years before we were just like theorizing, or like not even a couple thousand years, like a hundred years before, we still had humors, you know, like the bile and the the blood and the vapors and all that kind of stuff is crazy to me. Yeah. Um, You're gonna have to cut out so much. You're like, god damn, Kristen just rambles. But no, yeah, I'm, golly, I really need to learn way more stuff. But yeah, so another consequence of Boltzmann's death so we can get back on top. Sorry. No, you're good. Um, but another consequence of his death is that the department had to find a successor. So he was the head of the department. Um, and this resulted in inviting 48-year-old Max Planck from Berlin to interview for the position. Meitner had not heard of Planck's um, revolutionary concept of quantum before, um, quantum being that unit of energy. Um, before his visit, um, he described it in 1900, um, and that explained aspects of radiation, and she had not heard about it yet. So, like, she wants to study radiation. Here comes Max Planck. With all his new, with all his, his new. Is, is he the guy, is, it, is he the guy that has the, the Planck, like the, or Planck? Planck's constant. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. So Max Planck had used Boltzmann's theories on atoms and his uh, statistical Boltzmann's constant to come to his con- the, the new conclusions. Um, this idea of quantum also influences Albert Einstein with his later light physics, um, and Planck ends up uh, turning down the position in Vienna and returning to Berlin. So, so um, he did not teach Lisa, Lisa Meitner at this point? Not at this point. So Liza knew that his work represented the next steps to her research and asked her father to go to Berlin to study for Planck for a semester. Yeah, okay. However, this one semester would end up being over 30 years in Berlin. Wow, that's the longest semester I've ever heard. (laughs) I would hate to be in college that long. Well, she's not in college. She's just, she's a researcher now. Oh, okay. You know, like, she's, she's already got her PhD. Okay. Um... Berlin was a more conservative city than Vienna, and so when Meitner registered for Planck's lecture, he invited to her ho- him invited her to his home. Um, Meitner recalled the first time I visited him there, he said to me, "But you are a doctor already. What more do you want?" 
And when I replied that I would like to gain some real understanding of physics, he just said a few friendly words and did not pursue the matter any further. I I concluded that he did not have a very high opinion of women uh, students. And possibly that was true enough at the time. Women were not allowed to be full-time students at any university in Prussia, um, but there were over 100 women attending the lectures. Nice. So they were not official students, but they could attend. They could audit. Essentially, yeah. So in... 1897, Planck wrote a quote for a collection of statements from a Prussian academic, for Prussian, in 1897, Planck was quoted for a collection of statements from Prussian academics called Die Academic Frau, or The Academic Woman. Um, And this is what he had to say on the matter at the time. Um, In theoretical physics, the subject I represent That question has not yet become so acute that it requires a special statement as far as I am concerned. If a woman has a special gift for the task of theoretical physics, which does not happen often, but it does happen sometimes, and moreover, she herself feels moved to develop her gift, I do not think it right, both personally and impersonally, to refuse her the chance and means of studying for reason of principle. If it is at all comparable or compatible with academic order, I shall readily consent to a woman's admission on approval and always revocable to my lectures and my practical courses. And in that respect, up to this point, I have nothing but favorable experiences. On the other hand, I must keep to the fact that such a case must always be regarded as an exception. Generally, it cannot be emphasized enough that nature herself prescribes a woman to her function as a mother and a housewife, and that laws of nature cannot be ignored under any circumstance without grave danger, which in the case under discussion would be especially manifest itself in the following generations. What a chivalrous... Misogynist he was. Yes. Oh no no! It's not nature that's. Or it's nature that says women should be stay-at-home mothers. Right. Not me. Right. <laughs> We're not deciding this. Nature decided it. Right. Like you know, that's why we stop educating them at fourteen, so that they can be barefoot foot and pregnant by fifteen. <laughs> this is crazy. Um, but yeah, since Liza was not officially a student at the university, she had a lot of freedom as far as her schedule was concerned. Um, she took on this task of setting up a lab for herself to conduct research. Um, but when she asked uh, Heydrich Rubens, the head of the experimental physics department for a private workplace, he told her he told her that uh, he could not offer her that. Um, He told me that the only space he had was in his own laboratory where I could work under his direction, and that is to a certain extent with him. While I was still considering how to answer him without offending him because because she was going to turn him down, um, Rubens added that Dr. Otto Hahn had indicated that he would be interested in collaborating with me. Hahn himself came in a few minutes later. Hahn was one of the was of the same age as me as myself and a very informal and very informal in manner and i had a feeling that i would have no hesitation in asking him all i needed to know moreover he had a good a very good reputation in the field of radioactivity so i was convinced that he could teach me a great deal 
Fantastic. Why did she want to turn down the first guy? Because he wanted her to work for him. I see. So right. He, so she would write all the papers, and he would get all the credits. Yes. Like Einstein and his wife. That's not confirmed. Well, it's confirmed in my head. <laughs> um... But yeah, uh, and whereas Otto Hahn was very much like, like it would have been a partnership, right? Because right. he's also he's the same age, he's kind of at the same point in his career. It's more of a one-on-one level versus this elder guy. He's an established person. I think I think media has ruined me because all I see is like a romantic comedy playing out at this point of him like like dealing with radioactive things and then falling in love and I'm sure that did not happen but it no. didn't it, it happened <laughs> that way in my head. No. Um no they were they were very formal with each other. Okay. I don't think they liked each other in that way at all. They were just business partners. Yeah. Okay. Um and then Aruhan, I don't know when exactly he gets married, but he does get married at you know, so he has a wife, and, and um, Liza is friends with his wife, and yeah. Okay. Um, well, that's unfortunate, because in my head, I wanted this to play out like a romantic comedy. No. <laughs> but yeah, so Han was a chemist by training, and Meitner thought that he would be a good collaborator to handle the chemistry of radiation, and she would handle the physics. Han offered her a workspace and equipment for counting alpha, beta, and gamma rays. And so they didn't know by, the gamma? Yeah, by substances. Um, they didn't know about it. Yeah. So they knew that these things existed. Do they know exactly what they are? I'm not sure. Or how they worked. They were just things that they could observe and were trying to classify and figure out. Yes. Okay. Um, and so by this point he had discovered multiple isotopes of thorium, lead, and polonium, which they didn't really know about isotopes quite yet, I don't think. So they didn't Um, call them the isotopes, they just called them like... Thorium lead or whatever. Right. So they the list you listed off. Yeah. So they usually called them like Eka something or you know like things like that. Like they gave them like extra names to indicate that this was like radioactive version of this or that. You know. Okay. When and did they find out about isotopes? Was this a lot? Was that a lot later or was it? It's, people? It, it's around the same time. So okay. it kind of all happens very rapidly. So I'm not sure exactly where in the timeline this fits. Yeah, because it all just, like, was, like, we knew nothing, and then all of a sudden we knew boom, 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 so much Yeah, because, like, from 1900, it was, like, you know, 1900 to, like, 1938 was, like, a huge time of radiochemistry of figuring out a lot of stuff really fast. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And uh, Ernst Rutherford was Han's postdoc advisor, and he said that Han had a nose for discovering new elements. (laughs) Um, Han worked in the space of Emil Fischer, um, who had no interest in radioactivity, um, but he allowed Han to give uh, Meitner a lab to work in, um, but she got, like, a small room adjacent to the work that was supposed to be, like, a carpenter's workshop because she wasn't allowed to work in the lab where the male chemistry students worked. Why not? Just because... Because she might flash an ankle and they would be tempted by her wily, in her her wily ways. I guess. So ridiculous. (laughs) Yeah. Um, While Liza was not expressly friends with anyone in the chemistry department except Han, um, she remembered this early time with Han. um, What she remembered most about him was his indestructible cheerfulness and serene disposition his constant helpfulness and his joy in music. 
He sounds like a like a golden retriever. He does. <laughs> when they worked together, they would sing Brahms duets together. Um, if the results were going well. Okay. Um, but yeah, like the chemistry department really did not like Liza Meitner, but the physics department was much more welcoming to her, much more readily welcoming, and I think that's because of Max Planck. I wonder um, if that's also because everyone knows that physicists and chemists hate each other, and there's like a rivalry to the death, and because she was a physics PhD, these chemists were like, no! Maybe, because like, interdisciplinary work at this time was kind of frowned upon. Yeah. So Because um, she had a PhD in, in, in physics. If she was a PhD in chemists, in chemistry, they'd have been fine, but no. this traitor lady was coming in here thinking she can do some stuff with her fancy physics degree. Get out of here with that. <laughs> I don't think the chemistry department would have been very welcoming at all in general for oh. any woman, but, um... I like my theory better. <laughs> um, but Max Planck continued to invite her and other academics to his home, um, and at these events she grew an extended family of colleagues and friends that meant a great deal to her throughout her life. So she ended, she never gets married, she never has kids, but, like, her colleagues and, like, the colleagues of the physics department... Um, really become her family. I, I think you're wrong. I think she did get married. She married to her work. Yes, that's true. I mean, anyone who likes teaches themselves eight years worth of schoolwork in two years is married to that. Like, yes, that's, that's official. That's officially a relationship that has been consummated. That's what happens. <laughs> I don't know how that works. I don't know how they consummated it, but it's it's been consummated. <laughs> she, um, at these events too, I just want to add this, uh, she describes how they would play tag like children, like Max Planck and all these physicists would play tag. And I have to show you what Max Planck looks like because I think it's adorable um, that he played tag. <laughs> Is he a weird-looking guy? Oh, is that him? It's him. He's just a little bald-looking guy. Yeah, it's just... He, he looks very dour. I can't imagine him playing tag, let alone smiling. Yes. Um, my understanding, he, was, he, he, he put off the air of being a very serious person. And so, like, to know that when he invited people over to his home, he, like, played tag, it's adorable. Why does everything back then sound like it's just a bunch of children doing things? Like... Just like singing in the lab, and honestly, when you originally said that they played tag, I forgot that it was at their house. I kept thinking, I imagined them in the lab, and I was like, <laughs> they're just playing tag with all these titillating apparatus around. Like, what is going on? No, no, this was at this was at his home. Um, she remarked. She also remarks later. Liza remarks later that he was not as arrogant as she first took him to be. Okay. Um, he was very reserved and straightforward. Um, so a lot of people thought he was, like, really conceited. That's what I'm saying. Like, people thought he, you know, like, he at first put off this, like, very, um, conceited vibe. Um, but he become, uh, she becomes great friends with Max Planck's daughters, um, who are about the same age as her, and they all share a love of music. Um, and really, Max Planck becomes, like, one of her biggest advocates throughout her life. Like a, like a father figure. Kind of. Um, yeah, just like a, I mean, a mentor, really. And so, from now, from 1908 to 1909, the work of studying radiation proved fruitful for Hahn and Meitner. They published nine articles in those two years. That's a lot of articles. Mm -hmm. 
Um, her biggest discovery in this period was the recoil method of detecting alpha emitters. So essentially when an alpha particle is emitted from a nuclei, the particle is ejected with great force, right? right? And so this causes the nucleus is being emitted from to recoil in the opposite direction. Like shooting a gun. Exactly. So if you're firing a gun, the bullet being fired out of, when the bullet is fired out of the gun, the gun tries to go backwards, right, to oppose the movement of the bullet. So in this analogy, obviously, the bullet is the alpha particle and the gun would be the rest of the nuclei. So every, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Yep. That is cool. In 1908, Rutherford, uh, Hans' mentor, won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for studying radioactive elements. Um, this brought Rutherford to Berlin for a visit. And I think this visit and how Han remembers it indicates a little bit about how Han views Liza Meitner. Okay. Um, so this is from, this is Han's words. While Mrs. Rutherford did her Christmas shopping, sometimes accompanied by Liza Meitner, Rutherford and I had long talks. Um, he inquired about my prospects and was taken aback when I told him that as a private private docent, which is a, like a, a job title, I was not on the permanent staff of the university. He was thought that the fact that I had discovered a number of radioactive elements should have been recognized by some official appointment, preferably a chair. But yeah, he sends Liza Meitner off with Rutherford's wife to go do shopping while they talk about science, you know? Right. Oh my gosh. Because women aren't capable of higher thought, man. Mm -hmm. Like, our ovaries overreact. They're like, no, shut it down. I'm running into hysterics. Where did my cocaine and dildo? <laughs> a year later, in 1909, Otto Hahn would be rewarded with a faculty position. However, Meitner would not receive any paycheck until 1912. Five yeah. years later for her uh, internationally recognized research. Yeah. Wow. So how did she live? Her parents sent her money. Oh. Wow. Good grief. Yeah. So she just... Man. It would not be until 15 years later that the university would hire her as a private docent, which is uh, like a lecturer. Um, while she was rejected by her peers privately, she... Or while, sorry, while she was respected by her peers privately, she was not rewarded publicly, monetarily, or professionally until Meitner was 34 years old. Her only source of income was her was a stipend from her father while being one of the most accomplished women in physics, along with Marie Curie. Listen, if she wanted the money, she needed to find a husband and to get pregnant because that's how women had money back then. <laughs> like... This is, this is her own fault, right? For not being barefoot and pregnant. She should have known. She should have known. This is... I don't know. That... Yeah. yeah. It, it's, it's, it's awful. I mean... And then in 1910, Liza Meitner's father passes away. Oh, no. Um, and it becomes harder for her family to financially support her, even with the small stipend she was used to. In 1912, Max Planck formally asked Meitner to be his assistant... And it was a great honor, and she viewed it as a passport to scientific activity in the eyes of most scientists and a great help to overcoming many current prejudices against academic women. But did he pay her? Yes. Okay. This job was not um, a research position, though. It was a teaching one. Okay. Um, so she graded the papers of Max Planck's students, and but it was a paid role. 
and it, good. it was considered it, it was it was not a bad position. a bad position. Okay. Um, and so between 1912 and 1913, Meitner and Hahn published seven more papers on beta radiation, thorium, and where radioactinium belonged on the periodic table. Where does it belong on the I'm just kidding. You don't have to answer that. I know that's like when you get into the radioactive elements, things get really crazy really quickly with mm-hmm. where they belong. And a lot of the time, too, like the papers don't match what we what we know them to be now. So they'll name them something else and then it'll be like renamed and repositioned too sometimes. So I'm not completely sure sometimes. Who makes those decisions? I mean, it comes down to evidence. So like it'll be one piece of evidence that and people interpret it to think that it would go here and then we get more evidence and then we're like, oh no, it's definitely over here. Or, um, you know. So like, is that like with the math things? Like if I discover an element and I'm like, oh, that goes right here. And then you come along and you're like, "Uh, actually it goes over here. And I've already named this thing hexagonium. And then because you found out that it was different, you've named it burgundium. Do you get to rename it because you corrected my In this period, yes. Dang, that's brutal. I thought you were going to say no, but man. So that's... not not now, because now we have an actual, like, committee that names elements. But back in this time, yeah, you could name it whatever you wanted. If I corrected your stuff, if... if, if... It's whoever ends up being right to a certain degree. <laughs> wow. Okay. Man, yeah, that's brutal. Okay. But yeah, so in... Uh, on October 23rd of 1912, a new institution was founded, the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Chemistry. There was a big ce- uh, ceremony attended by the Kaiser himself, and there was a section for radiochemistry. Um, she was the first physicist on staff in an unpaid position, while Otto Hahn got a promotion to the head of the radioactive research department. And he got paid. Oh, of course. The director of the chemistry department asked Liza Meitner to find students and laboratory assistants while she remained a guest in the department, even though she was as accomplished as Han. And not getting paid. Yeah. Golly, it's, it's so infuriating. I'm sorry, I have to stop interrupting you with all this stuff. No, but no, it's mad. It's it's awful. And the next year, at the instigation of Planck, because again, Planck is like her advocate every single time. Mm-hmm. Um, she was offered a scientific associate position and made an equal to Han. So she finally gets a position. But it only took her a year. Yeah. Well, it took her a lot longer than a year. Well, that, yeah. yeah. Good grief. The things that these women had to overcome. I would have given up like so much longer. I've been like, oh, I had to teach myself eight years worth of worth of school in two years. <laughs> just, just I, I, I'll be barefoot and pregnant instead. This is this is too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She began meeting other scientific women though. So Eva uh, Barbergus um, was a physicist from Sweden, and Elizabeth uh, Scheisman was a biology lecturer and researcher of plant biology. Um, these women, along with Planck's daughters, um, would become like great friends together. Like they all had like this community together. And Planck again is like one of her biggest supporters. Writing um, later in his life, I value her very highly, not only scientifically but also personally. She's a true friend. That's fantastic. Um, she published six more articles from 1913 to 1914. Golly. She is a beast. Mm-hmm. Do they get paid for the articles at least? No. No. No money. Nope. On June 28th, 1914, it was announced that Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated. Yes. Six weeks later, Germany declared war, and the war to end all wars had officially begun. 
all of the young and mid-career young men were enlisted into the war um, effort, including Liza's brothers and Otto Hahn. Um, the government of Germany expected the war to last no more than six months. And people listening to this podcast will know from our nitrogen episode. Shout out to that. <laughs> Um, this was not the case, um, this was of course not the case, and so by the fall of 1914, Liza Meitner began to help the war effort in her own way by researching the medical applications of x-ray technology. That's fantastic, and I mean, it really sucks that it takes a war and every, all the men leaving for her to actually, like, be able to get some recognition and do some of the things that she wanted to do. Yeah, because the war is why Liza Meitner gets um, an offer for a permanent faculty position at the University of Prague. Right. Yeah. Because the University of Prague offers her a position, the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute sets, sent a counter offer um, of a salary and lodging to get her to stay in Berlin. It's not a faculty position, but it is like a raise. Yeah. Um, and then this is again at the urging of Max Planck because she probably she might have left, <laughs> um, but Max Planck was like, no, she she is worth something. We should try to keep her here. So she ends up receiving a salary of a thousand marks a year, which at the time Han received three thousand marks a year, um, but that included because he was married, he got extra. Okay. Um, okay, I, I can overlook that one. Yeah, and two years later, she receives another raise to the 3,000 marks to be on par with Han. What's that equivalent today? I have no idea. Okay. We'll look it up sometime. <laughs> but yeah, in 1915, uh, Liza, like many young women, again, volunteered for service, and she became a certified x-ray technician. So Marie Curie and her daughter Irene did the same thing, but for France. So they're on opposite sides of the war, right. but they're both doing x-ray. Right. Uh, so, like, did they come up with two different techniques for it or was it the same technique just one for Germany one for for France well so they didn't exactly come up with the technique I don't think they just like did it if okay. that makes sense like they they were literally taking x-rays like you would do at a hospital okay so literally yeah and I know I know Marie Curie did, was like part of like an ambulance unit and that was pretty novel is my understanding so like they had x-rays like in the back of a van and they were just driving around like what is the uh radius uh, of contamination for that very person? bad like so like you know i don't know if you know this but marie curie ends up getting leukemia yes probably she, because of the x-rays it was the it wasn't the radium she carried around in her breast pocket it was the x-rays yeah more likely than not so like they're just freewheeling around in an ambulance like taking x-rays and like so the people in the house probably got exposed to yeah I mean anyone around was definitely irradiated that is crazy the shielding was not great well I mean I mean but lead was everywhere wasn't it like all in the paint and the crystal but did they first of all it's got to be fairly thick can't just be a layer of paint um, to a certain degree and like yeah, no, it's, uh, they, they just honestly probably didn't think about it. They were like, we got bigger problems. All those people who got their x-rays, probably. Now, did Lisa... So, no, the, the x-rays would be fine. Like, the person getting an x-ray, because they're only getting it once, right? Oh, the people that are getting taking it. it. Oh, okay. That's, that's the problem. So did Lisa, or Lisa Mittner, was it the same story? Like, they were as crazy and just freewheeling with the x-rays as... Probably. Okay. Um, probably. Yeah. Uh, Liza Minor doesn't get cancer, though, so... 
That's good. Um, spoiler, I guess. But yeah. Spoiler! <laughs> she doesn't get cancer. Oh yeah, Miner would um, when Miner was like shipped off to the front lines, and she worked twenty-hour shifts helping the wounded. Um, Han and many of the other scientists from the KWI were also on the front lines in the trenches. That doesn't seem smart. Well, so this is the thing, though. A lot of them would get recruited for the chemical warfare research under the direction of Fritz Haber. Shout out to the nitrogen episode. Oh, man, I guess I should have listened to the nitrogen episode. It's not out yet. So. Oh, so I couldn't have. You couldn't have. But, um, yeah. So, uh, Meitner resented the militarization of science because, like, they were using the chemistry people to make the poison gas that was used during World War One. And ma- mustard gas? Uh, yeah, mustard, it's chlorine, you know. Yeah, yeah, mustard gas. Yeah, chlorine gas. Um, (laughs) Can I digress? I made mustard gas accidentally one time, because it's just ammonia and bleach. Yeah, you mixed ammonia and bleach, yeah. And I was cleaning in a kitchen, and nobody was around, it was just me, and I mixed ammonia, I had bleach in the thing, and I was like, I'm gonna throw some ammonia in there. And then, thank God, about a minute later, uh, an adult came into the room and was like, what is that? Because I was just sitting there like, oh, man, this is kind of, this is crazy. And so I just kind of walked to the other side of the room and started mopping over there thinking that the fumes would dissipate. And then the adult came in and was like, what did you do? And I was like, oh, it's ammonia and bleach. And they're like, get out of here now. It's like, go back. Are you trying to kill yourself and everyone else? So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, don't, don't ever mix ammonia and bleach while cleaning. Yep, yep. I did not know that. I was like 12. Yeah, um, yeah. Do it. People make that mistake a lot. It's awful. They should put um, like labels on ammonia. And be like, do not mix with bleach. And they, then like, I think they do. Oh, okay. <laughs> I just didn't read. Who reads labels? But yeah. So uh, as she and Han were away from the KWI, the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute. I'm going to call it the KWI from here. Okay. Um, the institution became a hub for chemical uh, war. Re- Research and Meitner really resented this. She nicknamed Fritz Haber the Lion and worried he would sink his claws into their radiation research as well. So he's taken over like the whole institution. Yeah. By summer of 1916, Liza asked to be transferred back to Berlin or be released from active duty um, because she was frustrated that she was not part of the inner circle of people making decisions for the KWI. Um, and the applications of science to warfare, because she was very against it. She did not like it. Yeah. Um, she sent letters to Han detailing updates about the research and had several breakthroughs, um, just including the discovery of a new radioisotope, protactinium, um, that she submitted a paper for, including Han's name, even though he was absent due to the war. Right, because she's a woman of integrity, and he had helped her for most of their career, so she was going to give them some credit. Mm-hmm. It seems that Han rarely wrote back during World War One. Um, you think? Like, yeah. I think he was a little busy. And when he did, he would talk about research. Han was, of course, recruited by Haber to the German Gas Warfare Corps. Um, so at first... That doesn't sound nefarious at all. No, it's very nefarious. So at first, it was, like, just research, trying to find chemical warfare agents, like, and... I don't know who thought that was, like, not going to be applied. Like, who's, like, oh, you know, it's not, it's not, we're not, like, we're not, 
poisoning people with it, you're going to. You're going. What else are you going to do with this poison gas? Right. Like you're in the middle of a war. You have been requisitioned to work for the poison people. Like yes. Come on. So there's um, no plausible tie to deniability in this situation. Exactly. Um, Haber had 1,500 men working on gas weapons. So in April of 1916, Haber had chlorine gas uh, that was released in Ypres, Belgium, and a witness to the attack described it as this. It produced a flooding of the lungs. It is equivalent to death to it is an equivalent death to drowning only on dry land. The effects are these: a splitting headache and a terrific thirst to drink water is instant death. A knife edge of pain in the lungs and a coughing up of a greenish froth from the st- of the stomach and the lungs, ending finally in insensibility and death. The color of the skin from white turns a greenish, black, and yellow. The tongue protrudes and the eyes assume a glassy stare. It is a fiendish death to die. And that's from uh, Lance Sergeant Elmer Cotton. He was an English soldier. Why does uh, drinking water, do you know what drinking water does? So you're making HCL in your body. Hydrochloric acid? Yeah. And so when you drink water, it's only making that process faster. faster. Oh my gosh. But why did they have to research this? Why didn't they just know to mix bleach and ammonia together? So, I mean, ammonia was not super common at this time. Oh, okay. So, like, again, shout out to the... (laughs) Shout out! Shout out to the nitrogen episode! (laughs) So, yeah, um, you know, it was... They didn't have a lot of ammonia before this, you know, at this time. Like, ammonia was not a common thing as it is, like, today. Ammonia was very rare. What about bleach? Was bleach invented at this point? Or did they invent it? Probably. I'm not 100% sure. I think... I'm not sure when bleach was invented, but I know ammonia was later. Okay. Well, like, we knew about ammonia, but, like, to have a, a large amount of it, we did not have. Okay. Didn't use it for cleaning and stuff at that point. Mm-hmm. Just so, murdering until people. Until now. Until, until it was a- applicable for murder, we did not use ammonia. Yeah, so, um, well, we used it, again, if, if, when people listen to that episode, look at it. The, um... They use it for fertilizer, and they use it for bombs, and they use it for chemical weapons. Fantastic. And now we use it for cleaning. Yes. They had to remarket it. I bet they had tons of it after the war, and they're like, what are we going to do with this? We can't kill people with it anymore. Well, so actually, they first invented it for fertilizer. Okay. That was the first intention. And then... And then we and then we were like bombs though. <laughs> and then someone was like, hmm, I wonder what happens when I mix this with bleach. And we're like, yeah, now we use it for murder. Yep. Han was in the 126th Infantry Regiment as a gas pioneer. <laughs> so he did not participate in the first ever gas attack, um, but he persi- he definitely persisted uh, participated in subsequent ones. I just really wish that this was like elementary school, and when you said a gas attack, that it was just farts and not mushroom gas. Yeah. Um, so Han apparently did protest the use of chemical weapons as it was illegal under the Hague Convention. So the Hague Convention said that it was illegal to use poison in warfare, and so this counted as poison, right? Right. Haber told Han that the French had uh, rifle bullets filled with gas and that they intended to use against German soldiers. That doesn't sound real. I mean, I'm sure they were trying to develop it because, like, but yeah, as soon as, but Germany was the first people to do this. Really? Yeah. So, 
Like, maybe the French were also trying to develop chemical weapons. I don't know. But, or maybe um, it was just a lie so that he would yeah. become complicit. Although, I don't think that happens. I don't think anyone ever lies to get people to capitulate. Like, at all. I don't think that's... I think everyone's very honest. Especially during war. Mm. But yeah, Haber said that the gas was the quickest way to bring an end to the war. Was the, was the argument. Han... Didn't they use that same exact argument for the bombing Nagasaki and Hiroshima? Yes, sure did. Yeah. It very, it mirrors a lot. Yeah. There's a lot of similarities. Um, Almost like history repeats itself. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in an interview, Han um, describes one of the first times that he um, saw the effects of poison gas on an enemy. Um, he actually tries to save the guy with a gas mask. Like, but I think it's probably once you've inhaled it, it's probably you're done. Like it's it was too late. There was nothing they could have done um, to fix it. But yeah. Um, Wait. Okay. We got to digress back to. Do we know like how does it start creating hydrochloric acid in your body? So if you have chlorine, you put it in water. You're making HCl. Okay. And our bodies are like seventy percent water. Yes. And so so as soon as it's hitting your mucous membranes, all of it is. So does is the ammonia carry? The bleach into your lungs? Is that what it is? No, it's or? literally making CL2. Oh, you have to explain that. It's releasing chlorine, like like elemental diatomic oh. chlorine is what's being released. Okay. That, yellow, mix that the... yellow gas is, is straight up just chlorine. Okay. And so, and then you breathe that in and because you are 70% water, it goes through and starts making all of the water into bleach. It, so or, I'm sorry, hydrochloric acid. Yes. My bad. I'm sorry, you said that. Yes. Yes, that is... Yeah, cut that out and make me sound smart. Take out when I said bleach. But no, yeah, wow, that would be horrible. Are there any... Is there anything else that does that? What did Zyklon B do, do you know? I don't know, off the top of my head. Okay, so... So they don't get into any of that. I was just wondering. I no, that's more... That's Haber. Haber does that. Well, Haber makes Zyklon A. Oh, I didn't know there was a Zyklon A. Well, I mean, if there's a Zyklon B, there's a Zyklon A. <laughs> I just thought, well, I mean, sometimes, like, maybe it's Zyklon B because the B stands for boron or something. Like, oh, that's fair. Something, that's fair. Know. That's fair. Uh, yeah, I don't, I am not a World War II researcher. I don't do a lot. I mean, Jared and I were actually talking last night, and he was like, oh, yeah, I like learning about the geopolitics of World War One and Two, And I'm like, I just like the science of it. Yeah. And it is horrifying once you find out what the science was used for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so as the war starts to wind down in June of 1918, Han was back in Berlin on leave, um, and Meitner and Han were awarded new contracts with an increased salary as permanent scientific members of the KWI of chemistry. Um, the KWI had recently received funding from IG Farben, which um, they are... They were basically um, a monopoly of all of all German industrial science. Okay. Um, and Liza was given uh, the responsibility of developing a new physics section for the Institute. Okay. Yeah, because she has a PhD in physics. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So she had a second floor laboratory where she got to buy new uh, apparatuses and hire staff. And this is her 40th birthday, so she gets to celebrate with her new lab. Ooh. It only took her 20 years, 20 plus <laughs> years to get there, but yeah. hey. So now the KWI, um, with receiving um, funding from IG Farben, is like a new turning point in the for chemistry in Germany. So at this point, like, 
chemistry, the German chemical industry, academic research, and military are all converging into one entity, right? Like, like a military industrial complex kind of thing? Yes. Okay. So German nationalism after World War I only grows stronger. But a lot of scientists, or some scientists at least, resisted the shift. So Liza Meitner, Max Planck, and Albert Einstein were all very, like, anti-nationalist kind of people. So we, we know that... I wonder if part of that wasn't because, you know, they were born Jewish. I don't know if Ma, Ma, Max Max Planck, Planck was wasn't. Not. He wasn't. They were just conscientious objectors. Because, and honestly, like, Liza Meitner is not very Jewish. Right, like, she's not she not culturally. She's just, you know... What is that? Ethnically. Like, ethnically. Yeah. Jewish. So, like, so that didn't, didn't have anything to do with any of this. Cause, mm-hmm. And also, I guess hindsight's twenty twenty because it's, you know, now like, oh, yeah, they, it was not a good time to be of Jewish descent. But mm-hmm. at that time, it was not quite as scandalous. I yeah, guess. like like I said, it gets bad really fast. You know, like there there comes a turning point, and we'll talk about that. They they really resisted that military application of science, though. Um, especially Albert Einstein, he was very vocal about that. Right. Uh, even with World War One over, there were a few more tragedies in store for the physics community of Germany. Both of Max Planck's twin daughters passed away from childbirth. Oh no! So one in 1917 and the other in 1919. Um, they were some of Eliza Meitner's closest friends. Um, Though there were some victories as well, Max Planck won the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1919 for his fundamental interpretation of the quantum concept applied to black body radiation, and that laid the foundation for, like, a lot of atomic and nuclear physics, so... Also... Wait, did the babies survive? At least one of them did. Okay. I don't know about the second one. Oh, no. Um, To be honest, because they were actually married to the same man. So, what? Yeah. The first twin um, died in childbirth. The second twin came to care for the child. Um, and then, I guess, they fell in love, and they also got married. Um, and then she also passed away. So I just imagine this man had an enormous head, and that his babies had enormous heads as well, and that the, the giant-headed babies killed these women. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know if that was the problem. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Wow, that is weird, though. I'm not blaming... I'm blaming that guy. There's something wrong with him. He's the reason why they died. Okay. (laughs) I don't know. I don't even know his name, okay? He's just some guy. This was supposed to be a a one-off small remark. I'm sorry. I just... As a mother, I care about babies, and I needed to know whether the babies survived. But I, I think that man... I think the problem was He had a big head. He had a giant dome. (laughs) But yeah, also in 1919, the newly convened International Atomic Energy Commission decided to name Otto Hahn and Liza Meitner the official discoverers of protactinium. Cool. Is protactinium still an element? Yes. Or they didn't get renamed? Nope. No, that one's official. Good. Nobody came through and was like, I'm going to name this. Lactinium. Yeah, so this given the the International Atomic Energy Commission, they're the ones who still like determine who who win who wins. But okay. like before they were convened, there was no like official person saying, Yes, you you've done it. Fantastic. So now we have the official person that does it. Fantastic. <laughs> um so Germany, even with its diminished political power, continued to be like a scientific powerhouse. Um, in fact, in the 1920s, German science was the topic of numerous political speeches and debates. I think the view of the time was summed up best by Max Planck in a speech. So, 
It says, if he says, if the enemy has taken from our fatherland all defense and power, if domestic if severe domestic crises have broken in on us and perhaps still more severe crises lay before us, there is one thing which no foreign or domestic enemy has yet taken from us. That is the position which German science occupies in the world. Moreover, it is the mission of our academy, above all, as the most distinguished scientific agency of the state, to maintain this position and, if the need should arise, to defend it with every available means. Yeah. The only... The horrible thing is, is that Germany kept declaring war and the scientists were like, we don't like this, and leaving the country. Mm-hmm. They had just not been so warmongering. Well, so that's not why a lot of scientists left the country, at least with World War II. Is it because they were all Jewish? Yes. <laughs> they were Jewish or they were married to Jewish women. Yeah. So basically... They chose the wrong group of people to persecute. Had they, like, made the Jews the master race or something, they might have actually maybe won. This is this is off the rails. I'm sorry. Uh, I'll cut I'm that just, out for sure. <laughs> I'm just ridiculous. Well, and also, I, like... I may or may not... I, I, maybe I'll bleep a dildo. I don't know how to, like... I love that joke, but I, I feel like I should bleep dildo. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. No, I you're good. I think it's funny. No, you're and you're you're rightly historically they treated it with dildos. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. Oh, there was a web comic I saw and it was like that was another thing. It wasn't just cocaine and dildos. It was isolation. They would make the women stay in these rooms. Really? Yes. They were uh-huh. like. They were like. You, we are, we are prescribing bed rest for you. And that meant that they had to stay in a room, no visitors, no guests, nothing. And then back then, rich people had that really bright green wallpaper, which was lead. So these women were Lead being, or arsenic? Arsenic, my bad. I was going right. say, green is usually arsenic. No, you're right, my bad. They had the arsenic in the walls and lead crystal. So they are trapped in these rooms with no body to talk to, arsenic leaching out of the walls, lead in their vessels that they're drinking out of, being given cocaine and dildos. And then, like, people were, like... And everyone knows that, like, just... Isolation, solitary confinement will literally make a human go crazy. Yeah. So it's no wonder that these women were like going absolutely apeshit nuts and needed their fucking cocaine and dildos. Like, this is, this tracks. <laughs> it's all, this all makes sense. Yeah. Um, wait, 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 wait. Yes, I'm sorry. No, you're good. All right. So. Um, another point of important context is that chemistry was going through a big shift of understanding atomic theory, too. So, Bohr's model of the atom um, was published in 1913. Um, Meitner first met Bohr in 1920 when he was invited to give a lecture in Berlin. This began a friendship at that meeting, um, and she actually went to visit uh, Bohr in the summer of 1921 as well. So that summer, she developed a relationship with Bohr's family. He had a wife and five boys. Um, and she visited Sweden and developed relationships with Scandinavian scientists, um, Maine Siegben and Dick Koster, or sorry, Dirk Koster. <laughs> <laughs> Let's re-record that one. That yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, Scandinavian scientists, uh, Maine Siegben and Dirk Koster, 
um, who become uh, very... These relationships are, like, great friendships, but also they become incredibly important to Liza's life in about 25 years. Okay. So how old is she at this point? She's 40. 40, okay. In, in her 40s. Okay. And so in late 1921, she gets offered a position to teach in the physics department by Max Planck. Um, which was a very historic moment because no women had woman had ever been offered a, an official lecturer, let alone a professor, position. Anywhere or just at this place? At least in physics, but oh. maybe anywhere in Germany. Maybe anywhere in Germany. Um, by 1912, Liza had uh, her habituation, which was an oral exam, um, to like make sure she was qualified to teach, essentially. Um, her review committee was Max von Lau and Heinrich Rubens. Afterwards, she was presented with her um, Yen, Yenai Legendi. Let me go with that. Which officially uh, qualified her for, for the position. Okay. Um, and so on August 22nd, 1922, she became officially the first, yeah, no, the first female professor, professor in Prussia. Wow. So, so Prussia, that's not just Germany. That's like... No, it was, well, I think... I think it's Germany and, like, Austria. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. Germany and Austria. Yeah, just like that little region. <laughs> that, that region. Just that little area. I want to say Hungary might have been a part of it, too, but I don't know. I don't know history. But, yeah. Every new lecturer gives a, a public inaugural presentation. Mm -hmm. And so the subject of her lecture was the significance of radioactivity for cosmic processes. So space. Right. So like radioactivity in space. Yes. And did How? she do it like this? I, I imagine that she was like, this is the cosmic consequences of radiation in space. 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 Seriously doubt it. Oh, man. <laughs> Would have been very good, though. Yeah. Um, very captivating. Very captivating. However, so you, you're going to get pissed off again because the Berlin Academic Press, which is like a newspaper, published that it was on cosmetic physics. Golly. Like makeup physics. <laughs> yeah, let's put radiation on your face. Even with the issues of sexism and bias, the next years for Eliza Meitner's life was incredibly protective. Between 1922 and 1925, she published 16 articles on atomic structure, um, beta and gamma radiation. This woman was a beast! Yeah, in 1924, she was awarded two prizes from the American Association to Aid Women in Science, um, and she was also awarded the Leibniz Prize. Um, she got, like, second place, and she got, like, the Silver Leibniz Prize. And was the and she was the first woman to win that prize at all ever ever. Um, and so in 1925, uh, she also was awarded the Ignaz Lieber Prize in Vienna. In 1924, 1925, and from 1929 to 1934, Liza Meitner and Otto Hahn were nominated as a team for the Nobel Prize in Chemistry by Max Planck and many other people. A lot of people consider Otto Hahn and Liza Meitner to be the father and mother of the KWI. So they were nominated every year from 1920, wait, what'd you say? So they were nominated in 1924 and 1925, and then every year from 1929 to 1934. And how many times did they win? Otto Hahn won once. Oh, Fantastic. So Lisa Meitner won zero times. Yeah, and he won after that. So he did not win in that time period. Oh. There too, but um, he wins once. So she's never won the Nobel Prize. Correct. Did she win it posthumous? You cannot win a Nobel Prize posthumously. That is, well, okay. Could 
could could we just say that she did? <laughs> but yes, yeah. we're gonna change this podcast from cowboy chemistry to revisionist history. <laughs> How science should have went. How science should have worked. But yeah, um, her nephew Otto Robert Frisch uh, would also come to the KDF. K- KWI in this period after finishing his own graduate physics studies in Hamburg. Frisch was always inspired by his aunt's physical work, physics work, and throughout his life would credit her for his career. Fantastic. Um, At least somebody credited her. Yeah. Around 1925, Otto Hahn was made the director of the KWI for chemistry, and that led to Liza having a opportunity to study all known elements um, radiation, radiation properties. So by 1929, even though we still did not understand the structure of the nucleus because we had not discovered neutrons yet, um, there was talk of using atomic power to power submarines, spaceships, and for electricity. So how did they, what was that assumption based on? How were they going to do it? Science fiction writers. Oh, gosh, that is one of my favorite things in the world, how science fiction has always, like propelled science forward in ways that we probably wouldn't have. Mm-hmm. Like the, the sheer creative energy of it is it like it's inspiring. Oh yeah, science fiction is by far my favorite thing in the world. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love it. But yeah, H.G. Wells and another guy Hans Dominic um, were incredibly popular. Um but there were a lot of scientists at the time that thought it was like just hogwash. So Ernst Rutherford thought that anyone who expects a source of power from the transformation of atoms is talking moonshine. Well, look at him with mud <laughs> on his face. <laughs> that idiot. That dumb, 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 dumb. Yep. So by the 1930s, um, Hahn and Meitner had stopped collaborating as partners and were working on their own separate projects with their own students and staff. Liza published a series of papers on secondary beta radiation, um, and she took um, the first known picture of positron positron traces emitted by gamma radiation in a cloud chamber. Um, and she also correctly interpreted the observations of radiationless energy transitions. Radiate. Wait, say that again. Radiationless energy transmissions. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Um, so it's essentially a way that an electron can relax without emitting um, energy. Emitting like a photon or... Okay. Yeah. So, (laughs) this is backtracking again because... So she wrote that one paper about the recoil stuff, right? Yes. So, what about beta particles? Is that when they are released, is there also a recoil since it's negatively charged? No, because that's not coming out of the nucleus. Because, or well, I don't, I don't think so. Because it's, or it does come out of the nucleus. I'm being stupid. I didn't say it. (laughs) (laughs) No, but um, I'm gonna say no because of the mass. So the mass, because a beta particle is an electron, right? So like the mass is negative. It's not negative, but it's very, very small. Right, okay. So I think, I mean, it probably does a little bit, but is it enough to ever measure? Probably not. I see, I see. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it would be very small effect. It'd be like a slingshot versus a gun. Yeah, probably even smaller than that, though. Okay. Because, like, I mean, the mass difference is ginormous. Comparatively. Comparatively, yes. Right. Because, like, the mass of an electron is very small compared to the mass of the atom, whereas the mass of an uh, alpha particle is a helium nucleus, right? So the mass, there's more mass to, like, make make 
the right, right, the force happen. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. No, you're you good. Have to, like cut that out and put that where we were talking about the atom, the our, if that works or something. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. As you mentioned, I'm sorry. It just no. as you mentioned things, it's like, wait a second. What about this? And so mm-hmm. you can. You have my permission to cut this up and edit things however okay, cool. you want. I don't care. I will trust you. I'm not gonna. I'm not even sure I'll be able to listen to it because I can't handle my voice. But I'll make Jared listen to it and tell me how it sounds. Okay. Um, so by the 1930s, Han and Meitner had stopped collaborating as partners and were working on their own. Oh, I read this paragraph already. Wait, wait. Refresh my memory, though. They were working on their okay. own. Yeah, so I'll just read this one again. If it, yeah. So by the 1930s, Han and Meitner had stopped collaborating as partners and were working on their own separate projects with their own students and staff. Liza published a series of papers on secondary beta radiation. Yep. She took the first known um, pictures of positron traces emitted by a gamma radiation in a cloud chamber, and she correctly interpreted the observation of radiationless energy transitions. Okay. She is noted to be overall uninterested in the politics happening in Germany at the time, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't influencing the scientific community. She wasn't interested in the politics, but that didn't mean that the politics weren't interested in her. Exactly, because she's an Austrian citizen, so she it's not like she has any say over this, too. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's not that she's just, like, not interested. It, you know, she literally does... It doesn't What's completely affect her. Like, she right. can't change it to a certain degree, too. Um, not that it doesn't affect her, but, like, you know what right. I mean? Um, and with the glo- there's a global Great Depression that starts in 1929. Um, it came an, in- an increase in unemployment, nationalism, and anti-Semitism. Right. Einstein's- Gotta blame somebody. Einstein's theory of general relativity um, at this time starts to become considered a Jewish theoretical construction. So this was, like, the first conspiracy theory of, of, like, Jews being behind everything, huh? I don't think... I would not say it's probably the first. Well, okay. Because anti-Semitism goes back a long time. Touché, touché. But this is, like, the first one in, like, modern history. I wouldn't even go that far, necessarily. I mean, it's... Anti-Semitism is insidious. if this was just a, 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 a um, a Jewish myth or whatever... What what was their proof for that? Like, was it just to dismiss him? What was the point? They just didn't like Einstein. Okay. I mean, he he was Jewish and he was world famous, and they thought they didn't want a Jewish man being the head, like the face of German physics, ca- physics, chemistry. And yeah, okay. I mean that was it, it was all political. Okay. You know, like it was all that was that was the pro- the problem was that he was Jewish. There was no issue with theory. But. Yeah. I just don't understand how people can just discount, oh, he's Jewish, that we can't, like, do they just dismiss the theory after that? Like, so it's not exactly after that, but like, so there comes a point where they dismiss all Jewish um, people working in academia. Right. Right. And so Albert Einstein gets fired at that point. Mm -hmm. So he's not fired yet. Okay. And, but after he gets fired, you, they basically couldn't talk about it. It was you could not lecture about it, you could not talk about it, you could not apply it to your work without facing consequences. Einstein's theory specifically, or yes. any theory com- that had been originated by a Jewish person. I, it was mostly about Einstein. Einstein was considered an enemy of the state. Wow. 
So, yes. Just for being Jewish. Okay. For being Jewish and for being him, he was very anti-nationalist. He was very... He was a very... He was a very political person to a certain degree as well. Okay. And he was, you know, he was... He was Jewish and he spoke against the government. You know, like, it just... Yeah. Wow. Okay, yeah. So, on January 30th, 1933, Adolf Hitler is sworn in as Germany's new chancellor. The colleagues and friends of Liza Meitner, Einstein, and other German-Jewish scientists were all concerned for their safety. On February 28th, the German Capitol building is set on fire, and President von Hindenburg declares a state of emergency until further notice to restrict civil liberties of all German people. So, like, martial law. Yes. Crimes that were once punished by imprisonment were now death sentences, and anyone deemed undesirable, which would include communists, socialists, uh, the Roma people, um, liberals, homosexuals. Yes, but not not yet. Well, probably, actually, probably, yeah. Uh, I'm not sure when exactly, but because like at first, it's a lot of they they focus a lot on political prisoners, is my understanding. I see. Um, and so these were pla- people were placed under arrest eight. 100,000 people were jailed or sent to concentration camps at this point. Like, at the very beginning. I didn't realize this. I don't know, like I said, I don't know a lot about World War II. I don't care about that part. It's just the science bits that I like. Mm -hmm. But it's important for the context of Liza Meitner's life, so that's why I tell you about this, you know? Yeah, Um, it's just, I forget how horrific World War II really was. mm Mm-hmm. Um, and soon Hitler dissolved Parliament and seizes complete power. Yeah. But this is where we got to pause for part one. Okay. When we come back, uh, we will talk about the rise of Nazi Germany, Liza Meitner's time under its rule, and her escape out of Germany. Um, thank you for being my guest on this episode, and thank you to my listeners. Uh, please follow Cowboy Chemistry on Instagram at Cowboy Chemistry Podcast. Very excited to be here, and I can't wait. I think all the juicy, fun stuff's going to be next time. I'm excited about it. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. But thank you. Bye. <laughs> Exit music here. How does that sound? Pretty I good. I don't hear anything. You don't hear anything? Mm-hmm. Can you hear me though? Because mm-hmm. you're the one that has to. You don't hear anything? Mm-mm. Here. I probably won't put headphones on anyway. Yeah, but just to, yeah, just to hear sure yourself you hear. and like that you like how you sound. What do I sound like? It sounds fine. That is really loud. You can fix it a little bit in post, but it's pretty loud. Yeah, I don't know what to do about that. I was, man, listening to my voice, that was weird. I'll say this, though. I heard that clink down real loud, so. Oh, yeah, you got to be careful about that. Um, Glad I got styrofoam. Because it's also why I use a mouse instead of, because you can really hear, like, if I... Oh, my gosh. Are you okay? (laughs) Yep. Oh, God. That was... Oh, that was 
embarrassing as hell. <laughs> no, you're not the first one to break a chair. These are the shittiest chairs. Oh, I can get uh, Man, I'm gonna have a big old bruise on my face. Honestly, so sorry. stabbing me. Ah. I am so sorry. Oh, man. Oh, did I break? I broke this one too. No, no, oh, that one was already. Broke. You were not the first person to break a chair. <laughs> These are shitty chairs. It is not you, I swear. I'm sorry. No, it's all good. Okay, I'm gonna have to go find you another chair, though. Oh my. Not gonna lie. You bruised me. You're so sorry. You did to like when I get. You came with me. You were like, Dylan bruised me. <laughs> okay. Um. Oh man. <laughs> At least that happened before we started. Okay. okay. Uh, I'll be right back. I'll find you a chair. Okay. Stardust and chemistry.